How is it possible that it's already August? We hope you are enjoying your summer. Back by popular demand is our AirPods Pro giveaway. Members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts, which you get by becoming a member. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of August, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code BONUSCONTENT, one word, at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code Bonus content. Thank you for your support. I'm Zoe Weinberg, and this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're doing a crossover episode with Jordan Schneider. Jordan is the creator and host of the China Talk podcast and newsletter. He's also an adjunct fellow in the Technology and National Security Program at the Center for New American Security. Jordan, welcome to the show. So great to be here. I'm really excited for this. So we haven't done a crossover episode for a while, and I'm excited to hear a little bit more about China Talk, how it got started, what inspired you to, to, to write and produce content independently, but let's go back a little bit earlier to the beginning. How did you first become interested in China and foreign policy? Um, I think like as a kid, I remember um, my parents like bought me a radio and I was listening to NPR and then at 6 p.m. the BBC came on and I just thought it was really cool that there were like all these other countries out there that like also had like mayors and presidents and whatever. So maybe that's like the seed. Um, uh, fast forward 15 years later, uh, majored in history, worked in a couple of like DC or finance adjacent jobs. Um, I got really sick. Um, I had a big um, concussion that left me on long term disability for a while. And once I got out of that, I was sort of ready for a big adventure. And um, China um, ended up being uh, sort of like chosen by the gods, I guess. I applied to maybe 15 different fellowships to take me to Asia um, broadly defined. So there was stuff um, out for India, Malaysia, uh, Korea, Japan. Um, and the one that came through was the Yenching Academy at uh, Peking University in China. And so that was in 2017. And that sort of started me down this path, I guess. So um I got there. I invested um, pretty intensely in uh, developing language skills, and um, you know, a few months into uh, my time at Peking University, sort of bored by the courses, um, I started reading books and then emailing authors asking if they would talk to me on a microphone. Um, which uh, a number of them, without you know any audience to speak of, were very generous and giving their time. And that's sort of how the uh, um, how how China Talk. Uh, came to be in its initial form. And, you know, so it sounds like to some extent you, you know, you, you're, you found yourself interested in China in a sort of serendipitous way. One thing that I've often thought about is the ways in which certain regions of the world and certain languages have their kind of peaks and valleys in academic communities. And, and I would say particularly, you know, among like high school and college students. So maybe 30 years ago, a ton of people were studying Japanese. I would imagine those numbers have really decreased over time. Certainly when I was in high school, there was an interest um, in, in studying Arabic. I felt like that was a huge area of focus for folks, maybe Mandarin to a certain degree, but a little bit, a little bit less. Um, so in many ways, China has remained just as relevant today as it was maybe 15 years ago when you first, you know, spent time there and, and were studying um, the topic, I guess, from a political science or history perspective. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, do you feel like it was serendipitous? Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of funny, like freshman fall 2008, I walked into a first year Arabic class and the course, um, there was an Egyptian teacher 
And the first word he taught us was the word for beautiful. And he pointed to like the cute girl and said, beautiful. And I was like, ew, maybe this one is not for me. Um, so sort of I, I, I dropped that after a week and, um, you know, continued on with my high school Spanish. And but in the back of my mind, I was sort of like, huh, it would be fun to sort of really take on a challenging language and like expand my mind in that in that direction. And um, I, I guess the one thing I'll say, Zoe, about the sort of like I, peaks and troughs might be not the right framing. I think like that the motivations maybe of why people study um, uh, have have been studying Chinese, I think, have changed pretty dramatically just over the past 15 years. I mean, even in like the early, you know, even in so you go back to like the um, you know, the 30s and 40s, we'll do a little history lesson. Uh, you know, you had Americans going there, try to trying to evangelize. And like a lot of the um, uh, the sort of like early um, American scholars of China were were either missionaries or children of missionaries who like had lived in China and, and sort of learned the language. And then you have this like very weird time uh, of the of the 50s and 60s where you couldn't even go to mainland China. So you had folks who were like either sort of interested in Taiwan or got really interested in the in the sort of like you know, the, the ancient culture or classical Chinese. And then just like China was this like really weird, mysterious thing that you would sort of try to, you know, read through the newspapers that came out or what have you. And then, you know, getting into the, the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, even 2010s, you know, there was this there was this narrative that like if you were a, a foreigner or a, or a heritage speaker and you could sort of like go to China and bring your biculturalism as well as language skills, like that would be a, a potentially lucrative career path for you. And I think, um, you know, just in the past five years or so, that narrative has really changed and fallen off um, as the sort of, you know, decoupling, de-risking talk and and just like travel has become more difficult. And generally, I think like as Chinese firms have upgraded to the point that they don't really need foreigners um, to sort of do um, do a lot of functions that they may have uh, required them in the past. So, um, you know, as I'm talking to, 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 to young people, young people who are interested in China, the ones who that are really, um, you know, committed and sticking with the um, the language or the sort of heritage speakers abroad who are still interested in engaging with the country. It's less from a sort of business angle and more of a sort of like national security competition, you know, muckraking journalism angle, which is sad. Um, and, uh, you know, just sort of a sign of the times, I guess, that like I was sort of right at the tail end of being able to convince yourself that like being a foreigner and sort of like working in a cross border commercial way was somewhat, um, uh, somewhat feasible. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think about, um, you know, I mean, I think we both sort of like lived through this, this like real moment of optimism about the ways in which, you know, the, the U S and China and American and Chinese citizens would, would engage, um, you know, going forward. And I, you know, I think about something like, you know, the establishment of like the Schwartzman Scholar Program, right? Which I, to me at least was founded at a time in which like that optimism was maybe at its peak. I mean, maybe we're, you know, a little bit off on timeline, but, but, but relatively, um, you know, I think uh, sort of characteristic of a, of a feeling and a temperature in a moment. And it feels to me, but I don't focus on China, that, you know, the valence has really, really changed. Um, and, uh, and I, and I'm sure as a researcher and, a scholar or a policymaker um, that completely changes the equation of of what it is you're doing and what you're focused on. Yeah, I mean it's it it, it is what it is. These are sort of macro forces, by and large, justified. Um, but I do think there is something that's like tragic, um, both from the Chinese side as well as the as well as the American side of there, you know, were a lot of people in China, uh, you know, who who came to the US and sort of like were exposed to this vision of, of Western, um, you know, of Western values and liberalism. I mean, Zhang Yiming, uh, the, the TikTok CEO himself, like, you can see lots of blog posts from him from the late 2000s and early 2010s talking about how China needed more free speech. And that was how that was important to the future of um, uh, uh, to, to, to the future of his country. And, you know, multiply that out by the hundreds of thousands of Chinese international of Chinese nationals who've you know studied abroad or engaged with uh, uh, sort of global um, global ideas or what have you. You don't even need to have um, you know uh, studied outside of the country to sort of have come across this sort of thing. Um, and you know it's the same thing on the other side. Like I didn't 
I didn't start studying Chinese to like write about how America should do tighter export controls. Um, that's where we are now. Um, but um, uh, it, it, there is something that I think is like tragic at a very human level that like the people who are, uh, you know, have like at one point in their lives, like invested the most in trying to make this relationship work um, are are now the ones that are probably like on the forefront of whatever the competitive dynamic is going to be for the next five, 10, however many years. So I want to come back to China Talk for a second. You mentioned that the way that this all came about is that you started asking professors and other people if they would, you know, come and talk to you about the subject. But, you know, t- tell us a little bit more about what motivated your decision to start China Talk, and obviously it's both in print and, and you know, podcast, um, uh, and what you sort of felt was missing from the media landscape or the kind of dialogue about about China that, that, that you felt like you could help to sort of bring to the forefront. Sure. Just so for your, your listeners who aren't aware, uh, I run a newsletter and podcast, China Talk One Word, on uh, every podcast app and chinatalk.media, which is the Substack newsletter. Um, they both come out like weekly or biweekly if I'm really um, feeling it. Um, I think sort of the start was very uh, was was not particularly thought out. There was not a grand vision or like a, a sort of like narrative that I was necessarily trying to push. Um, I was reading stuff and I had questions and I thought it'd be more fun to. Um, uh, I think I'd be more likely to get them answered if I said, "Oh yeah, I'll do a podcast about it." Than if I just said, "Like, hey, you want to zoom with this like random grad student from halfway across the world for for thirty minutes?" And then the newsletter um, initially there were a lot of translations, and that was just sort of to keep me honest um, of like, "Oh, like I got to make sure I'm." learning Chinese and learning new words. So like, I'll just find stuff and translate it once a week. I think the sort of key lodestar um, and thing I realized I wanted to help bring to the discussion around um, US China, China technology, tech comp- S&T policy, what have you, is just rigorous thinking um, and helping to sort of spotlight and platform rigorous thinking, as well as, um, you know, take those people who are doing the rigorous thinking and then sort of pushing them and stretching them in different directions. And um, that, you know, I've tried because I think there's so much writing about China, which is lazy and not grounded and, and sort of not grappling with like facts or, you know, writing about technology, which doesn't actually grapple with like market dynamics or like technological dynamics. And um, the people that do that, um, they deserve to have more than 20 downloads on their PDFs. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm sort of doing two things, both like it, sort of trying to encourage those folks who are really putting in the extra effort and like doing the, 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 the hard work, whether it's, you know, reading a ton of like CCP literature or, um, you know, going three levels down in the supply chain to try to like understand different, um, different sort of dynamics in the solar supply chain or what have you, um, it, sort of raise their, raise their, um, you know, raise their profile, like raise my audience's expectations of what rigorous policy thinking looks like. And then also like inspiring the next generation of uh, science and technology or like China analysts to um, to show that um, good work matters um, and uh, can can have a real impact. So sometimes I think about, you know, what it means to be an entrepreneur in the policy space or the foreign policy space in particular. And it's hard because for the most part, if you want to pursue a career in foreign policy, there's some very established orgs, both, you know, in the private sector, in the kind of nonprofit and think tank world, and then obviously in the government where you can pursue that type of work. But to really try to carve out a career in which you are meaningfully you know, engaging with policy matters, but also kind of doing it on your own terms is pretty unusual. And that's really what you've done with China Talk. So I, w- I would love to hear more about what that journey has felt like and, and looked like to you and the ways also in which maybe it's allowed you to have a little more freedom in what you say or take more risks or ways in which maybe it's also limited what you can do. And do you think of it as entrepreneurship? Like that, maybe that's like the place to start. Like, is that even yeah. the right way to characterize this? I mean, yes, 
Absolutely. Let's start with the let's start with the the sort of your last point. Um, so there is a sort of there's like rumors that are like founded right now going around on Twitter that um, NVIDIA and Intel uh, in their meeting, you know, in their sort of like push to help liberalize the export controls um, have uh, tried to get both NSC staffers as well as a handful of uh, think tankers in sort of brand name institutions on Massachusetts Avenue fired um, because they think their sort of views are like too harsh and against their their commercial interests. Now, um, the beauty of what I have created um, over the past uh, over the past seven years is that no one can fire me um, because I have I have created like enough kind of random revenue streams um, from uh, from uh, listener support from uh, consulting contracts from advertisers or what have you that I don't have to worry about Pat Gelsinger getting mad at me um, and that is an extreme- you have the ultimate tenure. I have, the, I have the ultimate tenure of being shackled right. to making a podcast oh. every single week for the rest of my life. Um, no, which I love doing. But but no, but but seriously, I think the, the, the sort of like everyone in this world has to make compromises because it is not a, you know, this is not like a growth industry where like things just like work out. Um, um, you know, there is a relatively small pool of um, uh, pool of seats, pool of money, pool of funding that supports this type of work. And, you know, everyone operates under a different set of constraints, right? If you're in Congress, like you can only do things that your representative approves of. Um, uh, you also can't really write under your own name. Um, you know, there are upsides like Congress people have more power than Jordan Schneider um, and, uh, you know, can can the, 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 there's sort of leverage there. Right. Um, same thing in the executive branch, like like uh, you know, the, everyone is kind of operating under different um, uh, in different operating spaces and different sort of. Um, uh, you know, with different degrees of freedom uh, based on where they are in the hierarchy, their relationship with their boss, their relationship with other agencies, what have you, right? And even think tankers who are ostensibly the ones that are, whose jobs it is to um, kind of write freely and speak their mind, like the, the, the sort of dirty secret of that is like almost all of them, I mean, all of them, but almost all of them in one way or another, like have to bring in their own funding, be that from foundations or corporations, or, or wealthy individuals um, to, um, uh, um, uh, to, to to continue to support their work. Um, you know, what I don't have is like a stable job. I'm on my wife's healthcare. Um, and I sort of only got to this point because I was moonlighting this for seven years. Um, two of them, I was doing it in China. So I had very low um, uh, expenses. Another year I was living at home during COVID. And then I had a day job um, for two more years I as I was building this. So it was an extremely long road um, to get to the place where I can like barely make six figures, um, sort of like uh, bringing together lots of different um, pieces of uh, pieces of work for this. But the upside is that um, that, uh, you know, I don't I don't like have a master, um, which I think is super, super rare um, when, um, uh, you know, thinking about these uh, and I'm able to think about these sorts of issues with a degree of freedom that um, very few others are. I think that makes total sense. And, you know, I think that's probably a really enviable position for a lot of people who work on these issues for a long time, but are circumscribed by, you know, the various competing priorities of their institutions or what they can do in their personal capacity, et cetera. And, and so, yeah, you have a lot of degrees of freedom yeah. there. So, so I think for, for everyone out there listening to this show, who's mad their, does, their boss doesn't let them do something. Um, the, the one thing you can do that no one can really stop you from doing is starting an anonymous Twitter or Substack. Um, and, you know, as long as you're not breaking any laws and, um, you know, leaking like top secret things on Discord or what have you, um, I, I think there is something that is really um, uh, sort of inspiring and powerful, particularly for folks who haven't had that type of uh, that type of 
freedom before to like actually just sit down and try to write a thousand or two thousand words of like what's on your mind or what you think about this issue or what you think the discourse or media coverage or politicians are missing about this thing that for whatever reason you're really interested in or think that you sort of like, you know, see from a different angle than than other folks. So um, it really doesn't take a lot to get started, um, particularly, uh, you know, all it is is like, you know, three hours on a weeknight or something um, to sort of get those first. And all you have to do is write bullets nowadays because like ChatGPT can sort of like make it all nice for you. So um, um, I would really encourage folks uh, out there to just like write about anything and just only write one thing and sort of see how it feels. Um, and, you know, there's a whole nother story about um, starting starting a podcast, which I also think has like really, really low barriers to entry. Um, but I'm... Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the, like the, the, I wouldn't advise many people to like try to turn into me, um, because I think it's like, it's like a low probability play and like a long time in the making, but, um, there are ways in which you can incorporate, I think, like in your, in your day job and routine, there are ways in which you incor can incorporate by doing things anonymously or what have you, um, the sort of degrees of freedom that I think, um, a lot of folks would enjoy if they um, are able to kind of like get a get a taste once or twice of it. I think that's a great recommendation, and I would add to that um, that that they could also come on next in foreign policy. You know, do it in their personal capacity, etc. Um, which is a very sort of low stakes way of testing the waters when it comes to you know getting your ideas and voice out there. Um, I want to dive in uh, to you know some of some of the substantive issues here. You know, you mentioned sure. that a lot of the folks that you spend time with um, for China Talk are are really, you know, doing the real rigorous thinking. They're really grappling with you know market dynamics and technological developments and so forth. You know, I know you did some writing recently about um, about. Uh, some news that broke a while back around Chinese AI groups that were using cloud services to evade U.S. chip export controls. Would love to hear a little bit more about the work you did on that topic and also whether, you know, where you sort of see this in the kind of larger narrative around, you know, U.S.-China competition when it comes to AI. Sure. So, um, for some context, um, on October 7th of 2022, the U.S. government uh, put on some export controls restricting um, two things, uh, fancy semiconductor manufacturing equipment to be uh, exported to China, as well as um, the sort of biggest, baddest uh, AI chips, which you put in, uh, you know, giant uh, server farms, uh, which you then use to, you know, create GPT-4 or, or what have you. And um, there were sort of some restrictions made where like the 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 chips could only could be only so powerful and you know, only, um, you know, and only be able to like speak so quickly to other chips. Um, uh, what wasn't part of those restrictions was any um, uh, any sort of controls with regards to letting Chinese entities access the chips that are banned from uh, export into China from, uh, you know, server farms in Singapore or Seattle, um, which just sort of from the very beginning striked, struck myself and a number of analysts as like a kind of odd thing. And I think comes at like, a, and I think, you know, illustrates a pretty fundamental tension um, that's baked into both like, you know, the way uh, the Biden administration is looking at AI, comp AI competition in, in particular, as well as just sort of like tech competition in general. Um, so, you know, we had an announcement by, um, uh, you, you, we had a speech at, SP, at SESP in September of 2022 by Jake Sullivan saying that he wanted in specific technologies for the U.S. to be um, ahead um, as far as possible from its Chinese competitors. And, you know, that means two things, right? Like, uh, making America and its friends like accelerate as quickly as possible, as well as doing as much as you can to put sand in the gears of uh, Chinese firms who are on the same sort of like technological paths. Um, and I think sort of since that, you've seen different rhetoric as well as like actions which don't necessarily line up to that ideal. And, you know, the, the thing you highlighted, Zoe, of this cloud thing, of, of the sort of lack of cloud um, restrictions is really emblematic of it. Because if 
you know, you're defining AI broadly. It's not just, um, it's not just acts. It's not just like the the ability to manufacture um, these chips. It's also the ability to build, um, you know, build software and applications on top of them. And um, if I can just use chips that are in Seattle, like it doesn't really matter from an application perspective. Um, like Chinese firms will just be on the same level playing field as as um, as. Uh, us or eu or japanese ones and that may be fine um but i don't necessarily think it is um i I guess the argument on the other side is that like look it's better to have this revenue um coming into western coffers and then it'll sort of make baidu and whatnot less uh incentivized to invest in uh domestic alternatives and then you know if push comes to shove in 2025 you can always turn off access which strikes me as like I don't know, curious logic. Um, but um, I guess uh, in, in due fairness, that's sort of the um, uh, um, the pitch that uh, Intel and NVIDIA are making to um, uh, 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 to, um, uh, to to policymakers in Washington uh, now on the sort of contrary of of wanting to uh, be able to both uh, sort of sell um, for Western companies, sell into Western companies to allow them to continue to, um, you know, uh, have have. Chinese clients as well as sell chips uh, directly into China. Got it. And and when there is this sort of evasion of export controls, I guess I'm not totally clear what are the what's an appropriate response from the United like what how, where what do we do? You, ta- <laughs> you, you tell you tell me Zoe, what do you think? Where where did where should the um uh like is AI like strategic enough to to fight over in this way and 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 if so like where would you sort of draw the um you know what what are lines you'd be excited to draw i mean i think what's what's challenging about um characterizing the ai competition is that you know certain parts of it for sure maybe there's a there's a bit of a zero sum dynamic and, and and i would put something like you know inputs and supply chains into that category like either you're you know, you're getting your chips from this place or you're getting it from theirs and either it's vulnerable or it's not. You know, I I don't totally know um, how seriously to take, you know, some of these pronouncements that, you know, China is going to prepare itself to be, you know, capable of, you know, an invasion of Taiwan by 2027. I mean, you can tell me whether or not, um, you know, to what extent this is talk versus versus reality and, and how it should be interpreted. But, um, but, you know, I am willing to concede that there, you know, there are vulnerabilities in a supply chain that, um, that have meaningful implications for, for the development of machine learning as a sector. That being said, I think these tools in general are not, you know, are, should not be understood through a zero sum lens. And I, and I think really the question is less about, you know, sort of like who's, um, you know, whose enterprises you're, you're excluding from which geographies and rather like who is writing the rules of the road by, um, by just, you know, sort of coming to market first with, with, you know, the open source LLMs that ultimately, you know, def- come to define the way that we interact with personalized AI and AI co-pilots going forward. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, and what do you, and what do you think about that? The 2027, if I, you know, like, well, like how, do, how should we think about that? One thing at a time. Um, so, um, so I mean, with the AI, right? Like, like the way you get to write the rules of the road, as you alluded to, is like you're first to market. You have the best product, and um, you know you win market share uh, in the places where you contest it. Um, you know, I don't think like um, there's going to be U.S. procurement of like you know, Baidu for like helping write government PowerPoints anytime soon. But like lots of countries around the world are going to be looking at the two different sort of AI adjacent tech stacks that are going to be offered from the US and friends and from China are going to be making a decision. So um, again, if this is the technology to rule all technologies and we're industrial, we're we're in industrial revolution part four, um, my sense is that it would make more sense than not to try to tip as many scales as make sense to give um, America and friends the edge um, when it comes to developing and and deploying this soft um, you know this technology both both in the U.S. and um, uh, and in other countries around the world and um, 
you know, the way I see it, that applies not just to hardware, but to software as well. And, you know, there's, I think, like very reasonable debates to be had about like the efficacy of, you know, algorithmic export controls or what have you, but um, kind of throwing up your hands um, when it comes to access to the sort of compute, which is ultimately going to power the deployment of all of this, seems to me to be a bit of a cop out. Um, If you really buy into the sort of like, you know, generational strategic competition narrative, which I like am by and large convinced by um, pending, you know, whatever happens next after she. Um, So, yeah. I think that's I think that's where I land. Like moderate yeah. confidence. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I I do think a lot about whether or not having an authoritarian structure of govern governance ultimately gives you some sort of asymmetric advantage in in AI. And what I mean by that, and by the way, a lot of my thinking here has definitely been shaped by Avishal Garg, who's at um, Electric Capital and has written about this very insightfully. But, you know, I think it's fair to say that, you know, authoritarian regimes or also, you know, sort of author- any sort of authoritarian, you know, uh, structure will always have an advantage because machine learning is based on the mass collection and centralization of data, right? So that's not to say that democracies can't use AI and lots of really powerful and compelling and important and beneficial ways. But, you know, in many ways, AI is sort of an authoritarian style of technology at its core. Yeah. I Do you agree with that? Not really. Um, just because, like, I think in the abstract that makes sense. But, like, I think the more relevant data point is, like, China is a developing country. And um, as such, there's just less of it which is digitized. And, you know, certain things are like over digitized relative to the rest of the world, be that, you know, scanning everyone's faces as they walk around the street or what have you. But, um, you know, you have like just an enormous amount of stuff which is still done by hand and on paper. And like the if you think like the data problems that like the U.S. government has are real, like just there's just a long level. There's just a very, very long like uh, a long tail of pain that the Chinese government has been able to glue together with people because labor is cheap and you can just like hire civil servants to like move paper around and type things. And I think that is going to be the sort of like, you know, that that'll be the sort of thing which will change. And, And I really do think like also on the other hand, like if it really turns out that AI is going to be the thing that, um, uh, is so powerful it could save us all. Like I think discussions are in the West around stuff like HIPAA, around uh, you know data data sharing and you know sharing data around like your students and how they're performing in the classroom. Like that will change when the upside becomes incredibly obvious, such that like like uh, authoritarian countries being able to like take their data because they say so is uh, will 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 have less of a, an asymmetric advantage. Like a- another last thing is like people talk about like. Chinese government, like the like like China, like they have all this data and they can share it. Like basically, the 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 narrative that kind of everyone agreed on inside in in the in the sort of Chinese language discussion about like why did like the West create ChatGPT and we couldn't was that the internet has been siloed over um, the past fifteen years by like different Chinese conglomerates and like. Tencent is not going to allow its data to be scraped by Alibaba, which is not going to allow its data to be scraped by Baidu. And, you know, you just have these like tribal like systems which are incompatible with each other and like are not going to play nice, like not for like like the Chinese government can't like make them share their data. They're firms and they try to compete with each other. And that's sort of how it works. And maybe the Chinese government will try, but like you'll have all this like fighting from below and they'll like poison their data. So like Tencent doesn't get like, you know, an edge on Alibaba or what have you. So, um, you know, this is an argument that I think has been has been made in the abstract, not just around data, but around a lot of other um, things as well as like, oh, like it'll work better for an autocracy because they can like make decisions faster or this, that, and the other things. But um, I, I think a lot of that, a lot of that type of logic is like 
sort of like wishful thinking about yourself. Um, and, um, uh, you know, when you end up sort of like staring longer and harder at, uh, the way that the way the Chinese system and Chinese government ends up working, like you see a lot of more sort of, um, you know, blemishes, uh, which make the sort of, which, which, which end up complicate the sort of, um, uh, um, uh, you know, perceived, uh, perceived threat. So you're saying that government is bureaucratic and clunky, whether or not you're a democracy or an autocratic state. Oh, I mean, it's, <laughs> oh, I think it's, I mean, I think, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's more relevant. It's, it's downstream of like how rich you are, like, yeah. like richer governments, they're just, you know, I don't know, you have better people working in them. There's just like more, like you have like a society, which is operating on a different you know, it, it, you know, developed countries just like operate on different rhythms. Um, and I think, you know, for some things that's helpful for other things it isn't. Um, but if you're talking specifically about the data, uh, you know, getting, getting data in line, like I would be more, um, I would more bet on the, the sort of developed rather than the developing economies. I find myself, um, you know, you know, on net, being less concerned with, you know, which company has an edge when it comes to number of academic papers that are published in cutting edge machine learning topics per year and much more concerned with like TikTok, right? Which obviously relates to the machine learning context because, you know, recommendation algorithms are, are powered by AI. But, you know, to me, something like TikTok is a much more immediate, real and very present potential threat, you know, than, than sort of like AI progress more abstractly. Is that only, do I think that just because it is more concrete or how do you think about it? Um, well, aside, like my, my money's on ByteDance, uh, but to be the, to be the like Chinese, the real Chinese AI tycoon, I think we've, yeah. you know, people talk, people like are, are aware of like Ernie and Baidu and what have you, but ByteDance is the best engineers. They pay the most. They have been the most commercially successful over the past decade or so. Um, and they have the less, the, the, the least amount of sort of like, you know, corporate gunk in them just cause they're like a younger firm that like I have, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, long bite dance in its quest to sort of like, you know, realize Chinese, China's AI dream or what have you. Um, I think you're right. Uh, I think bite dance is, I think TikTok is really scary. Uh, it's like still like shocking to me that we're, uh, I don't know, uh, what is it? Five, six years into to TikTok becoming a thing and like even like getting on political radars in the US and, and there's still not being any sort of um, uh, uh, regulatory response to it. Um, but you know, I, I think it's it's sort of a, a more tangible um, issue. And like, you know, you can like understand like out like juking an algorithm to promote a, a particular viewpoint or a candidate is like a, a straightforward concept, like shifting global value change, which will happen which will happen over like five, 10, 15 year cycles, um, I think is just more like of an abstract concept. And I, and I think Americans have like sort of gotten that as like manufacturing, like the, the concept of like manufacturing jobs leaving is something that makes sense. But we haven't really had like a like a true technological competitor since uh, Japan in the 1980s. And um, that that sort of like ends up leading to a very different um uh, that's like a very different policy logic and a different and, and, and I think a different calls for a different response than, you know, just having like the equivalent of a popular of like, you know, a really popular newspaper or like RT being like a TV show that people want to watch, which I think is kind of just like a th that's sort of like the 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 sort of framework that 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 TikTok for me goes in as opposed to, um, you know, uh, Chinese car, Chinese electric vehicles, like being legitimately better than like anything that Detroit can produce, um, and trying to understand that and think about what the what the proper sort of like uh, uh, corporate as well as um, uh, you know, DC response should be to those sorts of um, you know legitimate challenges and like you know hats off to Chinese entrepreneurs for being able to um uh, uh, you know to achieve the success that they have with um, with respect to uh, you know solar and electric vehicles and even you know short form algorithmic um, video recommendations. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, uh, the, the West is off the hook um, for just sort of, you know, shrugging their shoulders and, 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 and moving on with their lives. 
Does TikTok get banned in the next 24 months? Uh, yes. I think Bold. maybe, maybe <laughs> I could see like a... Do you think it, it's, s- it's contingent on like where we are in the election cycle? Um... I mean, twenty four months was a little bit of a strategic. Uh, yeah, number. well, I mean, it <laughs> seems like it seems like a potential like lame duck Congress thing. Yeah. Um. Uh. I mean, maybe maybe there's some there's some dynamic where like both parties don't want to be like pissing off like my little brother, um, as the ones who banned it. Though I don't really think anyone would remember. Like, Depends on whether your little brother is over or under eighteen. I think is maybe part of it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I don't know. He's he's twenty three now right so like uh but um yeah definitely a voter but i think like uh yeah i mean maybe neither maybe neither party is like sort of worried about like angering voters or something or um but it it it, it is very odd that like you did have this sort of like crest but um in fact like this congress really doesn't seem to be doing all that much like there's very little in the ndaa which is particularly sharp um when it comes to china and for you know having this whole select committee and like everyone this apparently being the only bipartisan issue like the fact that all they can do is like commission studies um about these sorts of topics strikes strikes me as like like um a a sort of remarkable thing that actually surprised me about the the american political system that it that even on something like this they couldn't really um uh uh, move so i also obviously or maybe obviously, um, have national national security concerns about TikTok. But one of the things I often hear from, I would say, our peers is, you know, I don't care whether or not they can see my data. I don't really care if anybody's watching what I watch or, you know, knows that I like to watch cooking videos or, you know, cats doing tricks or whatever. Like, it just doesn't, you know, personal data privacy doesn't matter to me. I have my own probably, you know, my own response to that. But what is your response to that sort of lack of concern or, or yeah. apathy that I think we we see a lot amongst Gen Z and millennials? Yeah, I mean, Zoe, like I I was the guy talking five minutes ago about letting, uh, you know, Amazon uh, who's uh, suck up all of my all of the visits to my doctors. Right. Like I'm I'm I don't really care about privacy. Um, and I think that's like. I don't know where that comes from. I think that maybe that starts from me just like understanding that like if the Chinese government wants to hack me, they're like they're going to be able to read all my information and, you know, look through my webcam or what have you. They're like, I have no defense about that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, I think we've like all sort of made a lot of tradeoffs um, of giving up privacy in return for um, for services. And like, by and large, I've been OK with that. Um, so, you know, other people have different calculations. Um, and I think it's like folks should be able to make their their those those decisions based on where, where their head is at but um the the concern i have with tiktok sort of goes beyond privacy i think i think the sort of data privacy and the whole project texas like we'll just put all your data in like servers in the us is a total red herring um the real concern i have is the ability to um uh to sort of like have the chinese government dictate um in a sort of very subtle algorithmically um you know algorithmic way like which candidates get more coverage um positive or negative as well as like shape broader opinions on things the chinese government cares about i mean you know if you would if like china offered to buy the new york times and like like cbs and cnn tomorrow like like those acquisitions would be rejected um but the fact is like um, or Facebook, for instance, but like TikTok basically has as probably has like almost as much influence on um, where people get their news and information as like your Facebook feed, and that strikes me as like a really weird thing that a democ- that a democracy um, uh, would accept to have their strategic uh, their their ostensible strategic competitor um, uh, be running the firm which controls where people get their um, sort of news and like you know even just like their like where their emotional psyches are at for. Um, um, uh, you know, 45 minutes a day. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I, I thought it was so interesting that for so long it felt like the national security conversation around TikTok really did revolve around, you know, Americans' data and where are they going to get Americans' data and where is it? Blah, blah, blah. When I, I agree, the real risk, I think, is, you know, the fact that we understand very little about how the algorithm works and if in the run-up to 
to an election, you know, everybody's feeds were seeded with more conspiracy theories or extremist content or whatever, like we just wouldn't have any idea, right? Like that, that to me is a much, uh, much more daunting question or threat. Yeah. So let's 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 stay on this for a second, Zoe. I mean, you're the one who has a whole investment thesis about um uh, uh, about privacy and, and anonymization. Am I missing something here? Should I care about my HIPAA records and and, yeah. and web search history? No, you know, I think I mean, first of all, you know, it's interesting because privacy as an area of investment, I think historically has been thought to, you know, uh not not be a particularly lucrative one, right? And 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 it's because like the inherited wisdom on privacy, especially consumer privacy, is that individuals say they care about privacy, but they actually care about convenience, right? And when um you know when you arrive at at you know JFK and somehow Google knows it's time for you to have your boarding pass, like it's a little bit creepy, but like it's actually pretty convenient, right? And that that basically consumers are willing to give up a lot when it comes for convenience and services. I think that's generally true, but I also think that the tide is turning in a lot of ways. You know, part of it is that I think, um, you know, there's both like greater awareness and awareness of and demand for a little bit more enhanced privacy and self custody. Maybe it's because people are, you know, wash, you know, watching. Um, uh, what's the what's the um, Black Mirror? Like no, not well. Could be Black Mirror, but uh, not the Social Network. The um, I'm gonna have to go. Find, whatever people are consuming uh, content information that that I think has highlighted all the ways in which surveillance capitalism can be quite predatory and exploitative and all of all of those things. You know, I would also say that it's quite easy to be a little bit dismissive of privacy as a as a concern when you live in a relatively mature and stable democracy where, you know, maybe the NSA is reading your text messages, but like you don't really care, right? Because it doesn't actually impact your day-to-day life which really isn't the reality for like a lot of people around the world. Um, and so, you know, I think it's like easier to be a little bit, um, a little bit relaxed about privacy concerns depending on where you're sitting. And that, I, that I think has changed the equation a little bit too. Yeah, that's, that's really compelling for me. Like I can be flippant about HIPAA because I have faith in like the legal system that I live under that if someone doesn't hire me because like they find out I have a concussion, I can sue them and win. And, um, you know, apply that not just to, um, my health history, but, you know, my political views, my, uh, you know, a thousand, a thousand other things, which like I'm not so stressed about um, other people knowing. Um, and, you know, obviously I'm an outlier, like I'm a person who has a freaking podcast for Christ's sakes. Um, but, um, uh, but, but, I, but I do think it's, uh, you know, I don't know, three out of the six billion people on this planet um, have some reason to be uh, moderately concerned that um, the government understanding everything about them could potentially open them up to some really ugly, um, uh, uh, ugly outcomes, I think is like... Uh, yeah, you've sold you've sold me, Zoe. Um, uh, <laughs> well, I would also say it's a you know it's a false trade off between privacy and convenience, right? Like you know theoretically there should be a whole class of extremely private tools and services that are also really user friendly, and that hasn't always been the case. And part of it is around data sharing and interoperability and things like that. But I think one of the hopes is that you know there's a whole wave of innovation around things like you know zero knowledge proofs or around, you know, multi-party computation and things like that, that are, that hopefully will make it easier to both share information verify that things are true and do it in a way that's also privacy preserving. So I think that's part of what makes this space like exciting to me is like, there's always been this perceived trade-off between privacy and convenience, but like that doesn't, you know, that, that, that doesn't need to be the case. And, and hopefully we're seeing, you know, a next wave of of companies that will be building like right at that intersection, right? Inshallah. <laughs> Inshallah. That's the second word I learned. Yeah, right, right before you quit your Arabic class. Um, I know we're most we're basically out of time, and uh, and so I wanted to shift into our last segment in which we each share something that we are following 
right now in the news, whether it is, you know, p- potentially a book you're reading, maybe you just went and saw Oppenheimer or whatever. Um, but uh, I'm happy to go first. One of the things that I have been following because it's very relevant to me is that uh, there are are now record wait times for things like renewing your passport, getting global entry. We are in the summer of glut travel. Everybody is feeling less restricted from their, you know, COVID bubbles and is getting back out into the world. I think that's both a really good sign for countries and cities that are dependent on tourism, uh, but it's a very bad sign for me who needs to renew her global entry certification <laughs> i have faith jordan what are you following this week so um i was in a used bookstore on saturday and um of course um the the book that speaks to me from the shelves is divided sun midi and the breakdown of japanese high-tech industrial policy which in the context of uh lots of discussion about the chips act was a really really interesting um book that came out in like 1994 um for me to sink my teeth sink my teeth into i've read a not a lot of books about uh you know with like america you know foreign uh, uh uh, foreign researchers interviewing like a hundred Chinese bureaucrats, but I've never read one about someone interviewing a hundred Japanese bureaucrats. And my favorite anecdote, which I will just share for you guys, is like there was a um a sort of joint research lab that the Chinese government was trying to set up. Excuse me, that the Japanese government was trying to set up between like Toshiba and Mitsubishi and like five other companies, but no one was like hanging out with each other because they all had like their own company secrets and they weren't supposed to work together. So the um, the head of the lab decided that the only thing he could do was, quote, management by whiskey. And he just decided that at every opportunity, he would bring all the engineers out and just get them drunk with each other. And like by the end of it, they were all friends and like telling each other how to, you know, splice uh, uh, atoms in various ways. Uh, and I just thought that was like a wonderful little wrinkle into. I love uh, it. Will you say what the title was again? It's called Divided Sun by this guy, okay. Scott Callen. The funniest part was it was a um, uh, uh, it was actually like a signed book. And he he wrote it to this guy, Neil Gross, with my best wishes. Um, but like it was very clear that this book has not been opened. Um, so um, sorry, Neil Gross, uh, that this didn't grip you. But I'm very glad you ended up giving it to this used bookstore because I had a wonderful weekend with it. So that's great. There we go. And with that, thank you for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's NextGen initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Z Weinberg, Jordan at Jordan S-C-H-N-Y-C, and you can also follow his work at Chinatalk.media. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. And with that, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.